Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Laura Stewart, is the vice president of Canada's top real estate firm, REC Canada out of Toronto. And having spent the last eight years helping over 1,200 investors build out their real estate portfolios, Laura has now turned her attention to helping other real estate agents achieve top-tier success through content creation. She is the owner and operator of From the Ground Up Media, and her company helps realtors and business owners produce, edit, and post content on social media with the objective of helping them build a community to do more deals. Laura and I cover a lot of ground of her journey to being one of the best in the industry as a top performing, not just realtor, but educator and social media expert. It is a fantastic conversation. Laura just brings a ton of energy and integrity and vision and it was so fun no further delays let's get this show started laura stewart welcome to the everyday millionaire podcast thanks for joining me i'm so excited thanks so much for having me patrick well you know something we get this opportunity to also get to know each other in real time now i have met you we've had some brief conversations but i'm excited about getting to know you better and this is a, a cool conversation that I think our listeners are going to love. You know, first and foremost, you are based out of Toronto. You are a real estate investor. You are the, I guess you're the vice president. Are you the vice president of real estate? Vice, yeah, vice president of REC Canada. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're also a little bit of a, you know, social media sensation. You know, you do some really cool social media stuff. So well, I, I don't it. know if I would say that, but I'll take the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, let's get back to that. You know, let's talk about a couple of things. First, you know, the, the bios that I, you know, present or preposition are never really, they don't do justice. So I would like to ask you this question when somebody walks up to you and says, so Laura, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? Because that will help our listeners get grounded in just who you are. You know, as of probably a month ago, I would have said I'm a real estate agent and I help people purchase pre-construction condos to the tune of, you know, if I felt like humbly bragging, you know, 150 condos a year. And as a side hustle, um, I've started a little company that helps realtors. Um, you know, I, I help educate realtors on how to build a more consistent business. But in the last couple of weeks, quite honestly, I'd probably flip that on its head and say my my. Number one thing that I'm focusing focusing on this year is helping realtors grow their businesses. And I do that through a bunch of training programs uh, that we offer. And then as kind of now my side hustle is, is selling the real estate. So it's funny how my passion has kind of become my, my main hustle nowadays. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the realtor aspect of it. You know, when we look across the country, I don't know how many realtors are. I mean, there's 172,000 or something. It's a big number. 
Yeah, 77,000 of them are in Toronto. And yes, and we look at Toronto. <laughs> but the, the actual number of, and many probably don't realize this, but of that 77,000 that are registered realtors in Toronto area, less than what, 2% of them actually make a living as a realtor. There may be some of them that do one or two deals a year, maybe as a, you know, supplement their income. But from a make a living as a realtor, it's a very, very low percentage. Is, is that your numbers as well? Oh, thankfully not. Um, I, I wouldn't have had a very strong business then for the last oh, couple so- of years. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, no, no. But you are of the upper echelon oh, of the yeah. 2%. Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I work on a, on a great team. Um, I've been on this team for nine, almost 10 years now. Um, so as soon as I got my license, I decided I wanted to join a team. And the team at that time was, uh, we were, you know, flirting around 12th in the country for all of Royal LePage um, and Royal LePage being kind of Canada's uh, number one uh, franchise. And then in the last couple of years, we've, we've dabbled in first, second and, and third. So kind of we're, we're, we're going teeter tottering back and forth with with the top. So I'm very lucky that I surrounded myself with a, an amazing team. So, but that's what I guess what I'm saying is, is that you are in the upper echelon of realtors that actually take action, do stuff. So many have gotten their license and never do anything with it. That's my, I guess, really my, the point of my story of that 77,000 or 177,000 nationwide, whatever the number is, it is less than one or 2% that actually make a living as a realtor. Most get their license, realize this is really freaking hard work. And uh, I thought it was going to be easier than this. And then they go away. And they hang on to that piece of paper and or they do a bit of a side hustle because their cousin wants to do a deal. So they pick up some commission on one or two deals a year. And that's exactly it's like the 80-20 rule, but really it's more like 95-5 in all honesty. Um, There's a handful of realtors in our market who do the majority of business. And that applies for like almost any industry. But I think it's really, really prevalent in the real estate industry because there's so many you know, TV shows that glorify what being a real estate agent is. And that's really not what it is at all. I think a lot of people get into to real estate out of circumstance, desperation. Maybe there's a you know divorce and, and people have to get back into the workplace. And you see a lot of people get into it. They kind of fall into it. Very rarely have I heard anyone say, since I was 10 years old, I wanted to be a real estate agent. We kind of fall into it. And most of us aren't that passionate about it, unfortunately. And you can definitely tell the people who are really in this to create a, a, a lasting business. Um, to try to scale it versus the other people who kind of just dabble in it and do a handful of deals. And 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 then I think the results speak for themselves, really. Let's spend a little bit of time here and I'll tell you why. Because number one, a lot of listeners are investors. A lot of my listeners are investors and or entrepreneurs, business owners. And then so from one aspect of it, I say, okay, as an investor, what you need to be listening to is understanding is that not all realtors are created equal. Now we know that, but from an investor point of view, you need to get to a realtor that is really committed to the relationship as opposed to the transaction that is driven by the relationship, not the money. I think what really gets tired quickly, Laura, and you can confirm or expand on this, which is really that realtors who are stepping into it for the money, they are the 95 or 97% that eventually fall off quite quickly, probably within the first couple of years, probably many within the first year, but real. Kind of like if you're if you last more than three years, then you can be a consideration as you know somebody who's going to take it on. But give us a little bit of insight into that. Yeah, you know, I think when some people start in the business, they get what's called beginner's luck. I actually myself kind of had that. I I had a 
couple of transactions at the start of my real estate career that were over a million dollars and they kind of landed on my lap. I started in an incredible market. And I, I think that happens a lot with realtors. The market's going well, everyone's selling. You know, it, as long as you get just a couple listings, you know, you can make a pretty good living for, for a year to maybe two years. But I think what happens is people have what I like to call as commission breath, right? Where it's, they're not advising their clients property properly. They're just trying to get the deal done. And unfortunately, what happens is you might get that deal done one time, but people start to start to feel like they're being sold. Or when they look back, they say, you know, that advice wasn't necessarily great that I got from my realtor. And unfortunately, then they're not going to recommend you to their friends and their family. And when the beginner's luck dries out or when you go through hard markets like what we've just been going through, all of a sudden the phone's not ringing and you're you're not you haven't set up the foundation for your business. You're not going outbound and you're not getting those and so unfortunately, we've seen a lot of agents drop out lately. And I, I'd be very interested to know the numbers in the next couple of months when we get a new update on numbers and how many realtors actually dropped off because they thought, you know, I don't want to I don't want to pay the fees again. I don't want to go through the updating of my courses. I'm not doing enough business. And so we always kind of see this like this curve that goes up and down, up and down uh, where people will people fall through. And I think that's because they didn't focus on being a true advisor, a true partner with their with their clients. Well, it is interesting. You know, we see this with investors. We see this overall in the real estate market. You know, I've been on this planet long enough and doing real estate long enough to understand and see the cycles of real estate. And of course, when we go through certain times like we did, for example, in the past, let's say two or three years, right through to the end of 2022, coming into 2023, everybody's a real estate genius. Everybody's making money. And oh my gosh, there's a lot of unrealized gains on the table. And although there are some realized gains and then the wheels come off the bus and the next thing you know, I'm an idiot. You know, there is that I'm a genius. I'm an idiot. And then all of a sudden kind of shakes out those that are really committed to the path of investing in real estate, selling real estate, supporting. To your point, it is and the minute you go from going from transactional to relational, it changes the game. You become that trusted advisor. And that, however, takes patience. It also takes frame of mind that says, this isn't money today. This is actually waiting for the right opportunity to present it to my client in a way that they benefit, we benefit. So you're always loading the, I guess, the top end of the funnel, but that doesn't necessarily translate into money today. You've got to take the time to nurture those relationships, make sure that you're literally delivering on what it is that they're looking for. And I'm recapping, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. So if I just open up that space for you, what have you got to kind of share in that regard? Yeah, I I would I think your listeners, particularly real estate agents who are listening, they would be shocked at the amount of business my team turns down. Uh, we have the phone ringing off the hook for people who are trying to get out of the market. They're trying to list their homes particularly pre-construction condos, which I think we'll, we'll probably touch on in a little bit, you could do what's called an assignment. So people are now at that point where they're supposed to be closing on these properties that they bought four years ago. Obviously, the market changed, interest rates have gone up and they want to sell. Well, guess what? As a real estate agent, if I take that listing, I'm going to make another, call it five points on that, plus the money that I already made. But oftentimes I'm telling my clients, look, if you can close, I'm telling you not to sell. Because let's ride this wave. I, you know, the real estate market here in Toronto goes up and down upwards. Well, same with pretty much everywhere. But Toronto, you know, like we have some some found key foundational things that are going on where the real estate market continues to go up. Yeah, we go through these down periods, 
but it's going to go back up. And so I tell my clients, look, don't sell. So I'm missing out on those five points that I could have been making, but I know that that's the right thing for the client because I know they'll be taking a loss if they sell today. Or we'll have have uh, people who come to us who say, Laura, I want to buy another pre-construction condo. And I'll take a look at their portfolio and I'll say, guys, we're putting too many eggs in one basket. Like you already have three pre-cons. Let's make sure one, one of these closes first so that we know that you can close on these. And then maybe we'll think about doing something else. So again, that's waiting for future dollars. I, I could have easily sold any of those clients anytime today, taken the money and ran off into the sunset. But instead, I'm like, look, I want this. I plan on doing this business for a long time. And I want to make sure that my clients feel like they're well represented. Like I actually care about helping them build wealth in real estate, not just buying you know, one property or selling one property. Well, I mean, from a rate perspective, the real estate investment network perspective, you know, that's why REC is a trusted partner because we share in a fundamental philosophy, which is it isn't really about the short-term relationship that we're trying to build. It isn't the one-off. When we consider that, and this is interesting, is that in the to the degree that I've worked with many realtors who are not investor-focused versus investor-focused realtors, it's a totally different view of the world. And when we go to let's say we do a little bit of training with realtors ourselves over the years that we've done, you really start to see that the realtor who's selling a home, they get really good at that. But it is very transactional by nature. You know, how often do some, does somebody buy a home? You know, and then you're hoping for a referral from, you know, the brother, the uncle, the friend that says, oh, I had a great realtor. If you want to buy, you know, we'll see Laura. Whereas you're looking at it or investor-focused realtors are looking at it going, I can look after this particular client who may do two, three, five, 10, 50 deals. And that's what I want to support. So you're actually going into, I'll, I'll call it a bit of a partnership in terms of the more that you help manage their success, the benefit is to you as well. But yeah. it is really a kind of a win-win scenario for both of you. You you hit the nail on the head. I And, and uh, a client that comes to mind is actually this this wonderful woman. I won't name her name, but she lives in Vancouver. And she started buying property with us in early 2020. And since then, she's bought nine properties with us. So think about that, guys. Like, we're always, everyone's always saying, where do I get the leads from? I need more lead generation ideas. The leads are in your database. I've never met this woman. I've never, the only way I've seen her is through her driver's license. I don't actually, like, if she walked down the street, I wouldn't know her but she's on nine deals with me. And the reason is, is because we're properly managing her portfolio, looking at the timeline, looking at all her deposit payments. We've told her like, look, I don't think you should be buying any more of these properties here in Toronto. You might want to like spread it around, but I've done my part, you know, by helping educate her. And and she does multi-transactional guys. So it's like, you don't have to put any more money towards it. I, I No Google AdWords required, no dollars, no extra marketing dollars just a phone call, just following up and continuously providing value. And you can get nine deals out of one person. And so I think that's really the key when you work with investors is that you don't need a lot of them. You just need a handful of people who understand what investing in real estate means, what it looks like. And if they don't understand it, well, here's an opportunity for you to provide that education. And then and then really to hold their hand and kind of and lead them the way. I think where a lot of people get nervous is that they don't know where to find opportunities. They don't know how to crunch the numbers and assess the deals because the emotions kind of removed with investors, right? It's not about, oh, I can picture my family living in this and eating kitchen at the breakfast nook and the dog running in the backyard and the kids growing up and me marking their heights. It's not about that. It's like, does the do the numbers make sense? 
And so it's really important for for realtors to get that education to learn, like, what do I need to know? How do I work a pro forma? Where do I find these deals? Um, Where do I find investors? Or how do I help educate the people in my database to become investors? So those are the different questions you need to be asking yourself. And that's the education that you need to get as a realtor to really get into that investor market space. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about the pre-construction world and what's kind of transpired over the past couple of years and where it's led to today, given the market downturn and what's happening with interest rates, where investors are at. You know, we're seeing, you know, headlines out of Toronto. All these individuals are totally upset. They bought two, three years ago, and all of a sudden their prices have dropped. They're not going to be able to assign them. There's all sorts of stories unfolding in that world. But something that, you know, you and I touched on briefly and that, we just came out of a weekend, an incubator weekend, what we call incubator, which was a very kind of elite program that we put together with a group of, uh, I'll call them entrepreneurs, but real estate entrepreneurs. And they have other businesses, but they invest in real estate. And we put this kind of cool program together and it worked out really well. But we spent a weekend hanging out with a couple of amazing realtor business people here in the Vancouver area. Now, the point of that story is this, is as we sat down with developers, there was opportunity there for somebody if they were interested in it, but the opportunity wasn't, oh, let's go through the show home or let's go through the show suite or let's go to the construction site. This is a conversation with, okay, here's the dirt. There's an opportunity if you want to buy dirt. Here's an opportunity on a project that isn't out of the ground yet that we're moving forward. And we share this is that if you're hanging out with a realtor who's taking you to a show suite in an end user condo building, you're too late. Do not invest in that pre-construction deal. But that's a really high risk scenario. And a lot of people I think are bumping up against that today. They're at the effect of that right now is somebody was taking through literally through a show suite on a pre-construction deal. And I'm going, you're too late. You're far too late. There's at least what, three layers before that, maybe four. That's something I think everybody needs to know in regards to what you guys do. That's the game you play. It is really about your platinum clients. I think that's the term that you might use for them. But anyways, they're about your clients that you're sitting down and going, here's some opportunities. And you're looking three, four, five, seven years down the road kind of thing in terms of the developers and builders you're working with. So do you want to just expand on that for a minute? Because, and how are you handling what's going on in Toronto right now and and surrounding regions? Yeah. So I, I'll start with what's called platinum access is, is I think the word you were looking for. So platinum access, what that really means is that you're working with a real estate agent who has the very first access to pre-construction units. The only people who would have access to those units before your agent would be the friends and family of the developer. So you're getting in at absolute the first time that this is available to the public. And then what usually happens is uh, they'll pick a handful of, of agents. How do you become one of those agents? Well, you have to kind of prove yourself to that developer over the last couple of years. These things don't happen overnight. So certainly if you're working with a new agent, chances are they're not a platinum agent. And sometimes, unfortunately, people will say they're platinum agent or they have first access, which isn't always true. They might get access through um, their brokerage or maybe other agents that they're teaming up with. But normally to become a true platinum agent, you need to have relationships with these developers that take years and years to build. And the developer will give a handful of agents first access to units. So they'll give, you know, my my team will get 10 units, another team will get five, maybe some team will get 12, and they'll they'll hand out a couple of units to some people. 
and they'll see how the sales go at what's called first access pricing. Then if the sales go really well, just as basic supply and demand would dictate, guess what the developer does? They increase the price. So in two weeks, on paper, technically, if you bought at first access pricing, you might have already made anywhere between fifteen dollars and $30,000, depending on how much the developer increases prices. And this can go again and again and again. And like you said, it you know it might be three, four times. Sometimes it might be eight times before it even gets to the general public. Usually by then the whole de- the development might be sold out if it's that hot of a project and no one, you know, the, the, the general public don't even really get access. And so the important part, particularly if you're an investor, if you're an end user, who am I to dictate what you want to, you know, spend on your property? Maybe you overpaid a little bit, but if you're going to live there for 10 years, you're, you'll make your money back. But as an investor, you want to get in that, that first access pricing because that's how you're going to see the highest return. That's where you're going to see the most appreciation. We actually call it forced appreciation by the developed by the developer because they're actually forcing the the appreciation to go up because they keep increasing pricing. So it's always great news when I get to call my clients in like six weeks and say, hey, guess what, George, on on paper, you know, you've made you've made 30 grand. Now you can't do anything with it. It's not like you can sell it today. That's what we call an assignment. That doesn't happen for, you know, at least a couple, excuse me, a couple of years before the development's almost ready to be to be closed on. But yeah, on paper, some people can make pretty good money. Now, because of that whole strategy, we have seen a lot of people in the Toronto market. And I'm not sure what it's like out there in, in Calgary in terms of pre-construction condos, but we saw a lot of speculative buyers. And I, I call them speculative instead of investors because they're speculating that in the next three years, the market's going to do its thing and they're going to you know, make tons of money on paper, $150,000, $200,000, and they're going to sell the paperwork and not close on it. Now, the problem with that strategy as I see it, and again, this is me helping my investors. I, I don't want you to get into a situation where you can't close on a property and guess what? The market's tanked and there's no buyers for it. And now what do you do? You sell at a discounted price? Well, that's a bad investment. So I always advise my clients, look, that's not necessarily the strategy I think you should purchase pre-construction condos with. I think you should go into it with the intent of closing. And let's spend the next three, four, five years, however long it takes for it to be built, to get all our ducks in a row so that we can actually close on this thing. Now, at that time, when it's time for closing, if you've made a lot of money on paper and you wish to sell and the market's great, awesome. We can help you find a buyer. Although at that time, I would still honestly advise you to hold on to it because if you've made that much money on a property doing really nothing over the last four or five years, imagine what's going to happen in another 10 years if you just hold on to it. And so I generally still advise my clients to to hold on to these things. But sometimes people will say, look, no, I you know, my circumstance changed. I just retired. I need the cash, whatever it is, and then we can help people assign it. So we do see people get into into some sticky situations here in Toronto. Luckily, I don't see that often because I just don't advise my clients to get into a pre-construction deal if they don't have the intent of closing on it from the get. Well, there's a couple points to this really that are important that I think is what's causing a lot of the grief is that people did not have a plan B. So what you really just shared is an interesting one, right? Which is you say, okay, well, plan A is I'm going to hang on to this property over the three or four years. I'm going to ride the appreciation, forced appreciation, and that's what I'm going to do. And then I'll make a decision to whether I want to close on it and take it on or whether I'm going to sign it or what I'm going to do. That would be plan A. But if you don't have a plan B, in other words, if you haven't thought through the process of what could happen and saying, okay, if that can't unfold the way I want or if the upside isn't as big as I think I want it to be, I'm ready to do what's next, which is to actually close on the deal, get financing and go through the whole process. 
from there. So it's like a plan A, plan B, whereas so many people were riding this, I'm a genius. Then the music stopped and there's no chairs, right? So that is what we're dealing with. So for investors, if you're listening to this, you're going, I would never do a pre-construction. First off, I always say pre-construction works if you're understanding what you're doing and you're working with the right realtor. What we hear about is the speculators and when ultimately the shit hits them because they have no plan and they're just literally speculating and rolling the dice on the deal, that's where we hear the bad news. So what I'm trying to get out of this message with Laura here today is that there are some amazing realtor or investor-focused realtors who actually think like Laura, think like the REC team. And this is not a commercial for REC, by the way. This is literally saying is it's rare to come across a Laura and an REC in this game. That's my and I've been in the in this market for a long time in the investor market for a long time. And we were very, very happy when we created within the real estate investment network the relationship with REC as a trusted partner because we share common values in terms of being strategic, following a process, not speculating, but actually investing based on what's happening economically. So Anyways, and you know, you know what I actually think we do well. Sorry, Patrick, to cut you off. Is, is is between the two of us is we practice what we preach, right? So I know that you use the same strategies that you teach at Rain, and we use the same strategies here. So me personally, I I have pre construction condos that I have purchased. So it's not like I'm I'm advising people to do something I wouldn't do myself. And everyone on my team, like Jazz and Simeon, who own REC Canada, they have multiple pre construction condos. So we win when you win. And we're, 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 we're advising people to do something that we ourselves have done and we have seen it work for us. We, uh, most of the time, do not assign those condos. We are not speculative buyers. We are true investors. And I know that timing is everything and you can't always time the market. It's not like I can say for sure in four years, my condo is going to be worth a whole bunch of money. But I can tell you in 20 years, it sure, it sure will. Because that I know through history, if I just look at the stats, you know, real estate goes up and down upwards. What I specifically like about pre-construction condos is that it doesn't take a lot of work, right? So for the next, so I have a building that's going to take seven years for it to be built. It's going to be, uh, you know, a marquee building here in Toronto. So seven years, that's what they said on paper, which probably means, you know, nine years for the sucker to, to get built. And it's gone up in, in value over time already, which is great, but I can't do anything with that. But, you know, for me, I don't need a mortgage today. So that's great. I can kind of like use my money to invest in other businesses and whatnot, which is what I've been doing. And I pay the deposits over a period of time. So it's hard to get into like, this is a, a one bedroom condo. It's over a million dollars. That's a tough pill for people to swallow. Uh, and it is for me, I, you know, it's a tough pill for me to swallow, but I was able to get in because I could pay the deposits over a period of time. So I didn't need the full 20% down. I didn't need that kind of money access to that money today. I, I can pay for it over the course of time while it's getting built. So I think those are some reasons why people really like it, but it's not the be all end all. Like you said, you, you know, I, I think realtors need to look at their investor clients and really understand what, how involved they want to be. Some people are like, don't ask me to lift a hammer. I'm not doing shit with my, with my unit, or I don't want to deal with the tenants. Um, and, and some people are like, look, I'm really hands-on and I'm happy to, to landlord and do all those things. And so I think it, it's not one size fits all. We need to, you know, adapt to, to people's needs and what their lifestyle requirements are. So let's go down a little bit different path uh, as we kind of talk about what you do in terms of, of being a realtor. You've been doing this a long time. Uh, you're very committed to your clients. 
Uh, you're now to the point where you're saying, you know something, this is a great gig if you know how to do it. It's a great way to uh, be a contribution, make a living, you know, develop a skill. You're helping realtors do that through your coaching programs. But let's just talk a little bit about what it is about this for you, Laura, that lights you up. Why is it that you've kind of evolved to take this on? And I know that you've got all sorts of things going on in this space and you're evolving and shifting and changing, but always being a contribution. So what about Realtor? Why did you take it on? Why did you actually grow it as a business? What was the difference between you and somebody else who talks about it, but doesn't really carry it? Yeah, I think the reason what I've loved so much about helping other realtors is I wish I had access to these types of trainings when I first started, I guess, uh, in the business. And the reason I say that is because, you know, now that I'm older, I realize just how insecure a lot of adults are. And I I put myself in that basket. I think I always thought I, I was the insecure one and everyone else had their shit figured out. <laughs> Um, but what I've kind of come to learn in, in working with other realtors is that we're all in the same boat and we all suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome at some point in our lives. Um, sometimes it's debilitating. Sometimes it, it stops people from pursuing their dreams. And I, I think it's been so fun, so much fun to help people kind of get over those fears, to address their insecurities and to like really look at themselves in the mirror and say like, it's okay that I'm scared, but I'm going to do it anyway. And if I can help people on that journey, I mean, nothing feels better. Look, it feels great to sell a pre-construction condo. I'm not sitting here saying selling, you know, 100 units a year is is a bad way to make a living. But at some point when you do it again and again and again, it becomes a little monotonous in all honesty. Like, yeah, I've helped people build wealth, which is great. I love that. But, you know, I'm not here sitting here saying money's not important. Money's very important. And it's important to people and their families and how they live their lives and pursue their dreams. But what I found more fulfilling is helping people really overcome some of their deep-seated issues inside. Um, and it just so happens that I get to work with realtors who I who I think suffer from a lot of those things, or at least their job forces them to deal with a lot of those things because they're small business owners. They have to market themselves. They have to go on listing appointment and pitches. They hear no all the time. Now they have to put themselves on social media. That's even scarier. And so they have to do all these things. And they have to get over all these fears. And that's been so much fun helping people kind of like overcome that, that, uh, that really fulfills me. Let's kind of go down that path a little bit. You know, when you talk about imposter syndrome and you suffered from it, I mean, everybody I think suffers from it to different degrees, but to your point, you can recognize it and then figure out how you're going to bust through it, or you could let it be debilitating, pretend it doesn't exist and just keep chugging away and not having, you know, not experiencing the success that you want to have. Now, let's go back. You know, first off is you've gotten older. You're very young, by the way. And so <laughs> not everybody's seeing you on video. You are young. <laughs> but having said that, to me, everybody is young because I'm old. So let's go back. And you're a little... young to somebody too. So there you go. True. <laughs> 100%. So, you know, when you think about imposter syndrome and how that gets in the way, I mean, that that applies to anybody in business and in life. And we see it all the time. You being a coach, me being a coach, you know, it is something that we all, you know, I've certainly helped lots of people get through it, but I sometimes feel like even this many years later, uh, I sometimes deal with it. You know, it's like you, you question yourself because you're in a mode of growth and pushing. I know I'm that way. I'm always pushing myself to be more, to be better, to, you know, to do, to just elevate my game all the time. Think about, though, for you, Laura, I mean, you've really put that, you've kind of 
put that on, you know, your heart on your sleeve when it comes to that. I think part of what you do in working with women and, and having conversations with women on your podcast is kind of addressing some of those issues, having those kind of conversations. I believe that to be the case. Yeah, I, I certainly try my best. Um, what I've kind of found is, you know, oftentimes when they're people, when they're feeling insecure, at least what I found is that they they suddenly their ego comes into play or, you know, it's the fake it till you make it and no one wants to be vulnerable. And so you'll start to see a lot of people where like they put on a facade, they put on this front. Right. And what I'm trying to do is say, let's take down those walls a little bit. Like, let's take off the armor that we've built up over time. And let's say like, guys, I, I'm scared too. Like, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Right before we got on, Patrick, I, I I went to the washroom and I got myself some water and I was like, I'm nervous. Like, I can't believe I'm going to be on a podcast with someone of your caliber and and the the amount of views that you get and everything and, and how much experience you have. You know, that's nerve wracking. And, and the reason I'm saying this to people is not because I want anyone to feel sorry for me or anything like that, but it's about doing it anyway. Right. So it's it's I always say it's like the little kid on the diving board who doesn't want to jump in the water, who's so scared, right? And us as parents, well, if you're if you're a parent, you're listening, um, you know, and you're egging your kid on, you're like, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And then the kid finally jumps and their head pops out of the water and they're like, oh my God, with the biggest smile on their face and they realize they can do it. Unfortunately, somewhere along the lines as adults, we just stopped putting ourselves in those situations. We get really comfortable. We don't want to be on that diving board anymore that we dealt with all those things. But unfortunately, then you kind of really stop growing. And so, um, it, you know, I feel like it's my job to try to like help people look in the mirror and say like, what is the problem? And usually the problem is somewhere inside of themselves. People come up with all sorts of excuses. I hear them all day long. Laura, I don't have the right equipment. Laura, I don't have a team. Laura, I don't have access to pre-construction units. Whatever the excuses, and they're all just excuses, but they're all obstacles that we just have to work around. And generally speaking, I find the obstacle truly is their fear. They don't want to make the uncomfortable phone call. They don't want to put themselves on camera. They don't want to go and sit at the developer's office and bother the crap out of someone long enough until they get units or whatever it is. They're all just obstacles, right? And I think if we can kind of, a lot of people don't even know it's fear. Like I've said it and, and, and I'm going to be honest, it's a lot of men that I've dealt with and they'll say, well, you think you're scared? I'm not scared. You know, because that's what we've taught men to be not fearful. Or like they, they can't be fearful. And then I'll we'll work through it. Now, I have two chairs in my office. I call them my therapist chairs. I'm by no means a therapist, but sometimes it feels like therapy, but I'm helping people. And uh, we'll kind of work through it. And then at some point they're like, well, I don't, you know, you know, I don't want people to judge me. I don't want to start a podcast because I worry uh, what my friends will think. And then I'm like, that's fear though. You know, so you kind of have to work through it. And I, and I hope that through what I'm doing, um, and showcasing some of my own fears that other people will see it in themselves. And now that we've, we know it's fear, we can address it properly and we can move past it. You know, it is such a great conversation to have in my world. You know, I, I kind of go always in that direction in my own coaching with people because it's not really, I often say it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And what people fear is really being authentic and then people will like me if I'm so they hide behind what they do or they try to create the, you know, the view of this is what I do and it's really important. Well, focus less on what you do. You've got those gifts, you've got those skills, you've got those competencies. But if you really want to create great relationships, you've got to get confident and comfortable with who you are. And you start to lead with who you are because then you are attracting people who are actually in alignment with who you are and uh, not some 
persona or not some what I do, although that's a service you provide. But in terms of relationship, it really is something to tap in and let people tap into who you really are. And that actually then says, well, given who you are, tell me more about what you do, because I'm really interested in who you are. And I'm really interested in what you do now that I know who you are. And it's a little bit of a psychology shift. But to your point around the fear, when we see fear, it's always attached to ego. And when people understand ego a little bit deeper without getting into it, fundamentally, people think is, well, he told me I've got a really big ego or she's got a really big ego or we have those assessments and judgments. We usually relate it to arrogance and or, you know, being a braggart or being full of themselves. And while some of that is definitely true, ego is about identity. Ego is your identity. And the thing about ego is it's designed to protect itself. And it's either going to elevate itself or it's going to have itself play small if you're not aware. And all it's trying to protect itself from being shamed, from being embarrassed. It's trying to protect itself from being called out, made wrong. And that's where all that identity kind of really gets in the way of things. It's really our ego. So as much as we have fear, and I say this to people all the time, and I think you will see it as well. You're, you know, if you ask somebody that you're working with and say, well, what's up with you? And they go, well, I'm just really afraid of failure. And I will say, no, you're not. You're not afraid of failure. You're actually afraid of the judgment that you think you're going to be put under the microscope with friends, with family, with peers, because you didn't get the result that you said you wanted. That's the fear. Because failure is very, very rarely catastrophic. It is, you know, it could be expensive, but it's rarely catastrophic. And it's more about the fear of what people might say about you should that happen. And that's where the ego really gets in the way. So I don't know if this gives you something to riff off in that conversation. Yeah. Well, don't you think it's kind of interesting too, that we all think, you know, we all fear the judgment of others. Right. But I think that's our ego playing in it as well, because why do we think that what we do is so important to other people that they're like sitting there just at home, like, oh, I can't wait until Patrick fails. And I'm just going to watch this disaster happen. And then when he fails, I'm going to think about it and make fun of him behind his back. Like, we're all the hero in our own lives. We have to realize like we're not the hero in other people's lives. They're the own hero in their lives. And they're not thinking about us as much as we think they're thinking about us. Now, that's not to say people aren't judgmental. Uh, I'm not saying no one's no one cares what you do when no one's judging you. You've made that up in your head because, you know, like I judge people like that's human nature. You you make quick judgments. You put people in boxes. You You try to label people as this and that, because that's how we can organize the world as quickly and efficiently as possible. But when you actually think about it, once I've done the judgment, and hopefully I catch myself and say, you know, Laura, like, what are you doing? That's usually to make me feel better about myself. because I'm insecure. I've then moved on. And now I'm thinking about myself. And I'm like, shit, you know, I did. I failed once too like that. Maybe I shouldn't have been so hard on that. And now all of a sudden, I've turned it around. I'm thinking about myself. So, uh, you know, it's the, to, to have the fear of others hold you back, it's just not a good enough excuse because the, no one's holding you back. No one's judging you as much as, as you think. People say, well, my family's going to judge me and they say mean things. Yeah, but hurt people hurt people. And usually it has something more to do with them and where they're at in their lives. And um, there's no, nothing worse than like a crab in the bucket, right? Like when people feel low, they want to keep their friends and their family low too. They don't want you to be so successful because you're going to leave them and you're going to be beyond them. And, and people worry that you're, you're not going to even want to relate with them anymore. And they want to keep you close. It's usually from a place of love. But, you know, you got to you got to be careful with who you tell your your dreams to and who you say things to. 
I used to share a lot more about my dreams and my ambitions with people, but I found I just wasn't getting the type of feedback that I wanted. And I take people like I, I respect other people's opinions, particularly my friends. And so I had to kind of say, look like it's not it's not serving me to tell people everything I want to accomplish and then have them tell me what all the things that could go wrong. That doesn't serve me. So now I keep more things to myself. I surround myself with people who have similar goals. Uh, and then I meet and it's funny, then you meet um, other amazing people who have same goals, just like how you and I met. And um, things start to become the opposite. It starts to be a positive spiral instead of a negative one. Well, it's up to us, I think, as business owners, as entrepreneurs, I often say this, you know, when I'm working in some of the programs that we put on, and that is that it's up to you to create the environment for yourself to, to succeed. So, you know, high performance is a result of low tolerances, and we have to look at ourselves and say, what are we tolerating? What is the environment that we're putting ourselves in? You know, I'm dealing with a young man right now, very bright, very cool stuff that he's doing, but he's constantly wanting to be the smartest guy in the room. And, you know, I've said to him as a young entrepreneur, and like I say, he's uber successful. And I think that's something that's interesting about this with, even with realtors, with entrepreneurs, with individuals, you know, this particular is a high income, you know, 300, 350K a year. i got a great business, got a great team. And he continues to want to be the smartest guy in the room. And where he needs to go next is actually to be one of the dumbest people in the room and to surround himself with number one, people that support and can get behind his vision. Number two, that are experts in an area that he isn't an expert and to actually step back and go, this is why I hired you because I'm not smart there. Like you need to take this, this is the vision you need to go with it. The point of that, and, and I'm really condensing the whole kind of thought process behind it, Laura, but we see that we have to create an environment that we step into. Now, one of the ways to do that is to show up authentically, to be confident in who you are, knowing that not everybody's going to like you because you don't align with common values. But here's the thing. If you put yourself in an environment with others where you share common values, really hard to lose in that world because you're in those conversations with people that share common conversations, common values, common goals, common philosophies on life and how we do business. And that really is being your truest self. And whatever your truest self is, listen, if you're doing shady deals, surround yourself with other people who are doing shady deals and you get along great. You know, if you're doing shady deals and you put yourself in an environment where other people don't do shady deals, you're going to get your ass handed to you. So whatever it is, that's the kind of the philosophy around it is it is our job as business owners, as entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, that we create an environment for ourselves to, in fact, elevate, succeed. You know, people who are comfortable questioning us, but not making us wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's always good to surround yourself sometimes with people who don't just agree to agree, right? Um, you know, you you also got to put yourself in some situations where you hear other perspectives. I, I, I There is a time in life where I think it can be dangerous, you know, if, if we're going to the like the far extremes where people only surround themselves with people who have, you know, awful thoughts and, and now you're surrounding yourself with those people. But I, yeah, I, I definitely think there's something to if you want more from your life and you surround yourself with people who have more and be humble and be kind of like the, the small fish in the big pond. I think what unfortunately happens is, well, at least in my specific example. So growing up, my parents definitely put me as the small fish in the big pond in terms of 
I, I ski raced growing up. And a lot of the people that were my in my core group of friends were came from wealthy family. I did not come from a wealthy family. And I know what it felt like to feel poor. I wasn't poor, but I felt poor compared to these. And, um, you know, it's all relative, right? And I remember thinking that was where my ambition came from because I never wanted to feel like that again. But what can be dangerous, and I think a lot of people who do succeed, who come from kind of humbler, humble beginnings, is that once they get to that place, now they feel like I've made it, right? And it is, I never wanted to feel that way again. So they like feeling like the big fish in the small pond. And all of a sudden, they don't want to challenge themselves anymore. So they don't want to go in and be surrounded by other people. And I think that's where you get, you know, some of those people who put themselves in rooms and they're kind of like talking just to be heard versus coming to something to listen. And, and we put on a bunch of programs and in and, and most of the programs, we will have like a group of 10 people. And there's usually always one person in each of our each of our programs that suffers from the same thing, you know? And I said, it's so interesting. They came to learn from us, but they find every opportunity to teach and to preach. And, and you know, I so I think people just have to check themselves a little bit. And so do we, like, I'm not the, our program's not the be all end all. I can learn something from them. There's always an opportunity for us to grow. You can, you can learn something from people who have more money than you, less money than you. You can learn from people who have more experience or less experience because sometimes people with less experience they look at things differently. They're not so in the weeds. They can see things from from an outsider's perspective that you've forgotten what it, that used to feel like. And so, yeah, I think always just kind of being open-minded. I take a lot of things home at night and I'll kind of like assess, like, what did that person mean by that, I wonder? And maybe I didn't look at that from the right vantage point. And it takes a lot of time, obviously, it's mental bandwidth. You know, I'll have a TV on and I'm not watching the TV. I'm just kind of running through those things in my head. But I, I actually think I learn a lot by doing that. I learn a lot of where I think people are coming from. How can I use that in my business? How can I look at something differently? I mean, I would have never purchased real estate if I hadn't put myself in uncomfortable positions because I was never taught that, right? So I surrounded myself with people who had different philosophies than me. And I think it served me really, really well. Stretched and grew you because of that. And that goes back to creating the environment that if you go golfing and you know this even as a, an athlete and when you put yourself in a position where uh, if you're golfing with three other people who are better than you, you will golf better. You may have a shitty day and a shitty game relative to those three people, but you always golf better when you're hanging out with three other people who are better golfers. Your game automatically elevates. It just does. And, and I'm sure that you've experienced that even as a skier is that when you're skiing with others who are even better or your match, you're pushing yourself, you're more focused, you're finer tuned, you see, have a pretty good ski day. I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but being a, a bit of an amateur skier, totally amateur skier, I know that when I ski with really other being people- being in Calgary? Skier? <laughs> no, I'm not actually, I'm not in Calgary. I'm actually, and by the way, by the way, Calgary has- Calgary. No, 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 I fool people. I'm uh, I'm bi-provincial. I actually live uh, in British Columbia and uh, Alberta. Uh, home base is actually Edmonton because I've got Edmonton. businesses there. Yeah, Edmonton, right, right. I'm there. Yeah. And so, and by the way, Calgary's only an hour away from the greatest ski in the world, Lake Louise. And uh, yeah, you know, I've skied there. That's true. And here, I am totally an average skier. But it's interesting about that is that when I'm skiing with better skiers, I have a tendency to follow them. And I'm always the guy at the front, not the, the or at the back, not the front. 
And that's because I'm watching how they're skiing and I'm picking up all their ski tips, which forces me to ski better. I love that aspect of it. That's my philosophy. Of being yeah, that's, that's so true. And it's funny. I, I tell people to do to put on educational events um, because I just seen what it's done for for my real estate business. But oftentimes people are, are really afraid. And I say, you know, nothing's stopping you from saying bringing on another realtor and doing an event together. And once you bring in that other person and you can kind of lean on each other, what you end up finding is that your game kind of goes up because you don't want to disappoint them. It's almost like having a personal trainer too, right? And their game goes up because they don't want to disappoint you. And if you guys each say like, I'm going to make 10 calls today and you're going to make 10 calls, neither of you wants to be the one that only made eight. You both want to be the one that says, actually, I did 12 calls today. And so I think there's additional benefit by surrounding yourself with other people or teaming up with people. Not, not to say you have to be a team but just to do things that make you uncomfortable as a team until you kind of get more comfortable with it. I think that's a great opportunity to kind of like push yourself outside your comfort zone without, you know, feeling like you're going to faint, for example. You know, whatever <laughs> gets true. you to do it. Whatever gets you to do it. Well, these are the little tricks that we can all use to kind of up our game. And that's the thing about it is that, you know, where you are, for example, in terms of the content that you produce and that you work with jazz and you really put it out there, but you didn't start day one putting out that kind of quality and that, and I, and I mean, not just in quality of content, but your quality of content has gotten better. The way you deliver that content has gotten better. You've learned from an editing aspect. And I know you've got a team behind you understood, but all, ultimately you didn't start there. You have to be going through the, I guess the growing pains, if you will. And I always go back to comparing it to what you might do in a gym, you know, you start going in there and you start exercising and every day you add a little bit of weight and then you eventually get stronger. As long as you're committed to doing that exercise and doing that workout on a regular basis, you will in fact grow. You grow those muscles and that's how it is with being a great realtor, great, being a great business owner, being a great, uh, great content provider and in putting yourself out there. You got to be uncomfortable like you are in the gym, but as long as you keep working that muscle, things improve. That's kind of how I see it. And you know, you can probably fill in some gaps there of how you kind of position it with your realtor clients in and how you kind of got to where you are today. Yeah, I, I actually use more of a diet analogy, but that, you know, the training works just as well, maybe even better. I might steal that. But um, I have an undergraduate degree in nutrition. So this one just kind of resonates with me really well in that, you know, people January 1st, right? They say, like, I want to lose all this weight. And then they go ham for like, four weeks. But what unfortunately they've done is they can't, maybe not even four weeks, they'll make it like three weeks and they can't sustain it. And that's why I think the most depressing day of the year is like third Monday because everyone's quit their, their uh, resolutions and it's dark and it's dreary and everyone's right back where they started. And so I, I kind of look at it like that. Like, unfortunately people, they want quick results. And if you have a January 1st, New Year's resolution, and then you're like, I'm going to go to the gym every day and I'm going to go really hard, or I expect myself to like be lifting all these weights. Fortunately, what happens is you fall off because it's not sustainable. So what I, I, I find that's what happens with people in their content. They say, Laura, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to do one every week. And I'm like, slow down, slow down. Have you recorded a single podcast yet? Like one episode? No. Have you even done a selfie video with your phone in front of you? No. Okay. Do you like public speaking? No, I'm terrified, but I'm going to do this. And I'm like, okay, how about we just start nice and slow? What if we don't even start with a podcast? Why don't we just start doing selfie videos once a week and posting them on Instagram or TikTok or LinkedIn or all of the above? 
And that is what slowly but surely gets people into the habit of producing content. People also don't give enough respect toward being able to verbalize something well. And I'm not saying I do the best job always, but that takes practice. You, people have ideas, but unfortunately, we're only given one minute on, on YouTube shorts, for example. You have one minute to get your thought across. And people aren't used to talking in one minute sound bites. And so that is a skill in and of itself. But unfortunately, people kind of have that expectation, like I'm going to do it and it's all going to be great, where it takes a long, long time. I started producing content two years ago. My the, Actually, what I did was I asked, I went around and got on other people's podcasts. So just like I'm doing today, this is probably like the 80th podcast that I've been a guest on. And I went out actively seeking to get on other people's podcasts because I knew that, A, they were going to ask me questions. So I didn't have to think of the content. And I just would be able to kind of express myself and, and, and verbalize myself in a way that, you know, I got better over time. And then what I could do is I can actually take this podcast and it, you know, if you if you provide it to me, I'll take the recording and then I can clip it up into little sound bites of content. So that's actually how I started producing content. I didn't go straight into having my own show. I didn't go onto Instagram and just start like doing all this stuff. It, it was a slow process and it gets easier over time. And just like how I said I was nervous to come on your show, like, guys, this is 80 something times I've done this and I still get nervous. So that necessarily go away. But what does go away is like how debilitating it can be. So I used to be nervous before being on someone's podcast like days in advance. Now I was nervous. I told you, I went to the washroom. And I was like, oh shit, I'm going to be on Patrick's podcast. I'm a little bit nervous. So they went from, you know, being a couple days of being nervous to now it's like five, 10 minutes beforehand. Cause I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a job, I'm working, I'm doing all these things. And so I like to say it like that, like in, in, in nutrition, the best way to be healthy is you already know the answer. You know how to be healthy. You know what you should eat and you know how much you should eat. There's no secret. Just doing that consistently and having some days where you're like, look, I ate half a chocolate bar yesterday. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up. Same thing with content. It's just like, you know what you need to do. Just try to do it consistently. And the days you fall off, don't beat yourself up and then get back on the wagon tomorrow and keep going. That's what it's all about. You know, it's interesting about the podcast. I'm used to sitting on this side of the microphone. So whenever I am a guest on the podcast, which isn't all that often, it's really kind of uncomfortable. It's weird to be being asked the questions as opposed to directing the questions. I'm far more comfortable on this side of the microphone. So that's interesting. Yeah. Cause a lot of people that I talk to, they'll say, I, you know, I, I'm scared to be a host because I have to like run the conversation and, and you're in control as the host where the guests you're kind of like following along. Um, but you know, kudos to you. I think you, you start wherever your strength is. Not everyone has the same strength. And I think if you're great at hosting host. I, what I do say, though, if you are going to go down the podcasting route, a great place to do it is is having guests on your show and not trying to just do a podcast by, by yourself because you can lean on other people to be the experts. Unfortunately, when you do something yourself, you feel you have to be the expert and then you're doing all this research in advance. And it's like, just bring on other people. They're the experts. You know, you, you stay in your lane, ask questions, be more the connector, right? You're bringing that information to your community. And that's more important than you knowing and having all the answers. Monologues are so freaking hard. I do not like monologues. I've done many of them, but they're the worst. I love getting experts and learning and having great conversations. That's my preference. That's why I've been doing this. Where, you know, this is the seventh year that we're into this particular podcast and uh, love doing this side of the microphone. So, anyways, we digress. Okay. Now, Laura. You did bring it up a little bit. I want to go back to it. You know, we often, you know, part of the 
podcast is, is like, if she can do it, I can do it too. You know, and when you look at your background, I enter the conversation or ask the question often, is it nurture or is it nature? And when we look at entrepreneurship and the spirit of being an entrepreneur, you know, where do you think yours stemmed? You know, when you look at what your parents, you said your parents were, you know, they put you in, they probably stretched to put you through skiing. That's an expensive sport to do. Uh, you were hanging out with people with way higher and deeper pockets, way higher net worths and deeper pro- uh, pockets. Tell me a little bit about your background growing up. Brothers, sisters, why were you a standout? Where are they compared to you? Uh, did your parents encourage you? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny because I, I'm I'm only five feet tall now as an adult, and I was always short. I was always a very tiny kid. My birthday's in December, so I was also like oftentimes a year behind in just growth and all the other kids. Plus, I was tiny. Um, so I, I do feel like I was, technically speaking, always disadvantaged from a um, like an athletic perspective. I'll, I'll use sports because I think that's the easiest analogy. And, and so oftentimes, like I was always the tiniest one. And my mom always laughs. She's like, you were just the most determined little kid. Like everyone would say, oh, she's small or she's a girl or whatever. She's like, that didn't stop you at all. Like, I, so to me, this was definitely nature. I was always determined, always wanting to be the best, always wanting to win. Like competition is, is second nature to me. Um, I actually thrive in it and enjoy it for the most part. Um, I certainly did it when I was younger. And I think my parents fostered that. I had an older brother. He used to beat me up all the time. And my parents didn't really intervene all that much. They kind of like let it happen and let me like kind of fend for myself, so to speak. So you learn early on that like, you know, things are not going to be handed to you and you have to fight for yourself and you have to, you know, I I remember oftentimes like playing tag or or running like in sprint races um, at school, like track and field. And people would say, I don't understand. She's so small, but she's so fast. And people would say, you know, like kids would ask me and they'd say, well, Laura, like, how, how are you so fast? And I'd say, I just choose to be fast. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I would just run. And then I would say, oh, someone's about to beat me. I'm going to run faster. And this idea of run faster, I've actually taken this throughout my adult life as well, because I I reflect on it a lot. I, I knew that the, the power of the mind can get you very, very far. Look, natural ability. I was probably never going to play basketball. Like I, you know, I get it. Like I certainly had some things not working for me, but for the most part, like if I just chose to do something, I kind of did it. And I've used that definitely in my businesses. You can will your way very, very far. Um, in terms of, of like nurture, you know, I, I don't think I'm a natural born entrepreneur in all honesty. I don't, I'm not like a serial entrepreneur. I get anxiety about juggling a lot of balls. I, I get nervous when I feel like people are disappointed in me. Sometimes I'm fearful of leading a team. So I, it's not like this is second nature to me. But like I said, I, I, I tend to keep putting myself in these very uncomfortable situations. Um, and sometimes I, why do I do this to myself? You know, here's all these people, like comfortable living, comfortable lives, and I'm always stressed out. But at the end of the day, I, I actually think my future self will think. I, I believe that my future self will look back and say, you pushed yourself to see what you were capable of. And when I look back on me as a kid, I'm very thankful I did it then. So I can only imagine I'll do that kind of in the rest of my life. So I hope that answers a, a bit of what you were looking for. But uh, I, I think most of it was just kind of in me. And, and hopefully the rest will kind of come through surrounding myself with people who um, 
have skill sets that I don't. My business partner in the, in the training company for realtors is is the opposite of me. And everyone here laughs. They're like, oh my God, Laura's the organized one. She tries to keep everything in boxes and she has checklists and markers. They're different colors. They all mean stuff. And he's, he, you know, no organization, but he gets shit done. And so you, you need people. You can't do everything yourself. I love that kind of story and the background. You know, there is so much that is attributed to mindset and understanding and part of the mindset, just understanding yourself, what makes you tick. You know, you said something that's interesting is that you keep putting yourself in these uncomfortable situations and then you go, what the hell, what am I doing? How did I get here? You know, I have to say that after almost 40 years in business, I still have that conversation with myself, you know, like, what the hell am I doing? How did I get here? And I think there is a part of it that, (laughs) why do we do this to ourselves, right? Man, self-destruct, what the hell is going on here? I don't think I could just chill out and relax. You know, my parents were very, we were lower income family and, you know, I had three sisters. And I think there's a part of me that goes, no, I'm never going to get, yeah, my dad and my mom was awesome. My dad and I never got along. It was like, my mom used to say, you know, you and your dad, you came out of the shoot fighting with your dad. That was just the way it was. I don't know why that is. But part of what he did was get into this comfort zone. And I think there's a part of me that is driven by the fact that I don't ever want to go there. I, I want to be a standout. I always want to be the best I can be. And I know that I never am the best. I Like it's never there. It's that, that world that we live into that says, no, no, there's better. You can do better. <laughs> you could have done better. It's kind of like you and a kid growing up. I, I could have run faster. I can, I can do this. I could run faster. There's a part of it that I think there's a genetic predisposition as of our DNA. Do you worry that you'll never have peace of mind because you're always like trying to better yourself and what's next, what's next? I do have peace of mind and I have peace of mind in a lot of ways because I know it's how I'm wired and I'm on a path that I'm doing always what I love to do. And do I have moments in time going, this is stupid and this sucks? Yes, but that's not the nature. It was interesting is that out of the program that we just came out of this past weekend with incubator is driving to the airport. And somebody asked me the question, you know, one of the guys asked me the questions, how do you feel after a weekend like this? Like you guys really put it out there. You did a lot of stuff and uh, you're kind of on all weekend. How do you feel after a weekend? And I think they were expecting me to say, I feel exhausted or I feel like, oh, so glad this is over. And it's just almost the polar opposite of that. I come off those weekends feeling like having a good workout, I feel spent, but I feel like, wow, that's awesome. When, when can we do it like again? High. You know, like that's yeah. how I come away from this. Weekend. Yeah. And, and it's because of that, for the most part, we're doing what we love to do. And is it hard work? And is it sometimes head scratching? You know, how are we going to, we still have to run a business. We still have overhead and bills to pay and still has to be profitable and all the rest of the things that we do in business. But ultimately that's, you know, I, I have peace of mind in that I know this is how I'm wired and that. If I'm not doing something constructive and doing something that lights me up, I'm probably bad news for myself. You know, it's not a good place for me to be. That is more uh, the case for me than like, I, you know, I joke that I'm on the Freedom 95 program because I don't ever want to stop doing what I'm doing, whatever that might be, you know, and, and I come from good genes. My mom's 95. And so, you know, and she's still sharp as a tack. We have conversations. She's awesome. So I go, I know, I, I think I come by it honestly, Laura. <laughs> so that's it. Okay. Well, good, good. Like I, I worry sometimes, uh, like I'll, ha- I'll be hanging with people and they'll say like, you know, people question you and they'll say, well, like Laura, you're always trying to find like that love of your career. And, 
you know, you're always beating your head against the wall. And like the rest of us are kind of like, you know, like I have friends, like we're in our forties now and they're kind of like going on with emotions. And then it makes me think like, am I picking the wrong path? But it's nice to hear, you know, again, this goes to surrounding yourself with like-minded people because I do think that you should love what you do from Monday to Friday. You're spending most of your life doing it. You know, people wanting to say, I can't, I just can't wait to retire. I like, I just couldn't, couldn't imagine living like that every single day and like dreading Monday morning. And, you know, Friday is the best day and Sunday is the worst day. That, that to me isn't great. But so it's nice to hear from somebody who's like, you know, at least you have peace of mind and not, and, and then maybe I'll find some peace of mind in that too. <laughs> well, I think there's a couple things around it, Laura, is that, you know, and, and it's a great conversation to have, you know, when I look at, you know, one of the guests I had on some time ago, and I share this because uh, I quit asking, what's your definition of success? So I used to be asking the guests, you know, what's your definition of success? And it's all over the map, but because success is something that is very individual, right? And, you know, some will go, it's not about money, money's just a way of keeping score. And everybody had this different vision or version of success. And for some reason, I was compelled to ask a guest, and I've had some amazing guests, and I asked him, how do you define success? And he said, I define success in that I look at my life and I go, am I living the vision that I have? And if I'm living the vision that I have in my mind, then I'm successful. And my vision is constantly changing. And so what's next? What's next? Because we hit these, I guess, layers of life that we go through. And some people say, well, I have this vision and success will be when I, I can retire at 55 or I can retire at 60 or whatever. That, that's the vision. And he's going, okay, great. You know, that, if that's your vision and that's what you're measuring your success, what are you doing for the 40 years in between that? Where do you actually take some time to feel successful and how do you do that? So, you know, goals are a, a, a thing, you know, that's a moment in time. But when you look at your vision for your life and where are you in your life and are you living your vision, that's a different place to create from. So when I look at my life right now, you know, we live in two provinces. We have homes in both provinces. We spend a little time in the Fraser Valley. I now work and have for many years, but certainly as we got through the lockdown period of stuff. I work from home. I live on five beautiful acres with my wife and a team of people that come by every so often, two beautiful dogs. I walk outside and I've got a view of the mountains and I do my poolside studio. And like, I'm going, this is my vision for my life. I mean, it couldn't be better. I'm not tied to certain things to go. Why would I ever want to stop doing this? Why, you know, and perhaps, you know, and I'm not driven to travel six months of the year and go live in Phoenix or whatever other warm area that that's not my goal. That's my vision. So I'm literally living my the vision and my wife and I are living the vision for our lives. And that's, that's okay. Will that change? Yeah, for sure. It will get hang out with my grandkids when I fly to Alberta. I mean, that's all really cool. So that's how I do it. I don't know if that's helpful in terms of scope of this conversation, but it really is that's where the peace of mind lives. Am I living my vision and I can answer for the most part? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. No, I like that. That's very helpful, actually. See, I can learn something from you today. <laughs> so the problem that we, you know, I think the psychology of it, Laura, is that, you know, we get into these uh, conversations with others and and we sometimes are led to question ourselves. And that's good. You know, it's a bit of an acid test, you know, like, ask an interesting question. They're actually poking a little bit, you know, they're nudging us, they're prodding us, like, tell me more, tell me more. And 
And it's a good way. I think the the key to all of this is the self-reflection on what is driving us and know thyself. We've we've heard that, you know, there's all the memes that go with it. Know thyself and learn, understand who you are in the context of your life and that you can actually create that intentionally. It's a decision. And what you decide, who you decide to be, how you decide to show up, who you decide to show up as, who is the friend you're going to be, the daughter you're going to be, you know, those are all decisions that we make. And it's intentional as opposed to by accident. You're being and looking at your life and going, no, this is who I'm choosing to be. So it always boils down to the fundamental question for you is who did you have to become? It's not about the goal. It's who did you have to become to achieve the goal? So when you started working with Jess, you started delivering content. And when you started literally guiding realtors on a journey based on your experience and your expertise and your view of the world, who did you have to become to do that? Well, you had to become bolder. You had to become smarter. You had to approach things differently. Physically, you're only five feet tall, but you know, energetically, you're 10 feet tall. That's who you had to become. You know? And so these, I think, are always great conversations to have. It's just a place to check in with ourselves. You know, even as I articulate what I articulate in this conversation, it, it actually helps me to remind myself of where yeah. maybe I'm not clear about what's next for me or who I'm being and how I'm showing up. So I know it's a little bit long-winded and totally seems off topic, but I think it's... No, no, I love that. Well, now we, you know, it's what's so good about this this show because you're just having really good conversations. And I think people struggle with these things and struggle with them in silence. And, um, you know, there's a lot of self-doubt. People have a hard time believing themselves or being like so convinced with with what they've chosen to do. And you can get derailed very, very quickly based on loved ones' opinions and their thoughts on things. And I always worry that I'm, I might regret something. And I always want to make decisions like, would I regret this in the future? Would I not? Now, here's the thing. I'll never know until it's, you know, until it's the future. That can sometimes be debilitating also. Like if you question things too much, like you got to take action at some point. You can't overanalyze everything and look at everything from every every vantage point before you make a decision, right? Otherwise, you know, you'll just be paralyzed. So that's important too. We're all geniuses in hindsight, you know, isn't it? You know, when we look at the things we could have done, should have done. But it's interesting about being an entrepreneur, being a real estate investor, you know, windows of opportunity open and then they close. And, you know, there's one thing to be in action. It's another thing to be in motion. Many people are just in motion. You know, they're getting education. They're taking another course. They're learning more. And that feels like they're in action, but really they're in motion. They're not taking action. So where do you take that action? And all of that that you've learned, now you have to apply it. And those are windows of opportunity. It's, I'm sure you see it even as you talk to realtors and you say, you know, do you want to join this program? Ah, yeah, I don't really have the money right now. And I, you know, just too busy. And I've got a, you know, I've got a child. As coaches, you know, I look at real estate investors and I have these conversations with real estate investors all of the time. 20 plus years later, literally thousands of real estate investors I've talked to, entrepreneurs, small business owners. And it's interesting. And you've seen this. I can tell you about countless immigrants who've come to this country with nothing. Some of them have come out of refugee camps. They came with, you know, three screaming kids, 10 bucks in their purse. Uh, you know, they had to leave a relationship in whatever country they came. And all of a sudden you see them, what are they doing? They're investing, they're, business, they're building big businesses and they're really successful. And, and guess what? 
all of the excuses in the world, and they still pulled it off. You know, people have gone through deaths and divorces, and I mean, the stories are like, I don't, I joke that I don't think there's a story or an excuse I haven't heard. And I've also seen those same things overcome. So like you, when you're in, when you're in it and you're working with realtors and you're doing what you do, especially with your team, it's tough to listen to those excuses. And you say, get the hell out of your way. Get out of, you're in your own way. We get it. <laughs> yeah. I know. I want to shake people, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm sympathetic because, you know, some of these things are painful that people go through, right? So I, I definitely, like, I can have empathy uh, and I want people to have empathy for me too. It's not like I've never given excuses. Of course I do. But you know, these people have me come too. to me and I, and I say to people, I'm like, look, like some, one of the things that I just recently started doing this year, I, I used to read a lot of like personal development books and it was always, what's the next book, the next book's the next book. But now I've read so many that I'm like, you know what? I, I got it. Like, there's not really another book that I'm going to pick up. That's going to like change my mindset. Cause I, they're, like a lot of them are the same. It's the same principles apply. So I've just decided like for the next like year, I'm only going to read one or two of the same book just over and over again. I think it's going to be Think and Grow Rich and uh, Atomic Habits. And that's it. It's like just as a refresher, because I like to hear positive things. I listen to like books on tape. But I tell people also like as a coach, I'm literally telling them, guys, you don't need to take another program. You know the answers. You know the answers. If, like there's there's seminar junkies and there are people who just they feel like they're taking action, but they're not actually doing anything. What I particularly like about our program is that we force you to do it on the spot. So like I'm, I put the camera in front of their face and I'm like, hey, we're shooting content now. Let's go. They book a, an event while they're with us and then they make calls with us and we're all doing it together as a group. So it's not just come and write in your notebook and then go home and put it in your bookshelf and never to be touched again, like actually take action. And I, you know, and I, I think there always is something to, to good coaches because I used to have a personal trainer for the gym until I got in the habit of really doing it myself. But I needed that person there for a little bit, right? So it's not so much about the education yeah. as much as it is about having someone to hold you accountable. And I think that's what's so good about some of these coaching programs because we're all in, we're sending. We're going to come up with the excuses, like you said. But if you have someone and you don't want to disappoint them, that's usually what gets you up in the morning. That's what gets the momentum going. And once that becomes a habit, then you might not need, you know, then you might be able to do it on your own. And that's really the goal. You know, uh, we often joke in the industry about self-help and self-help. And we often all have a cabinet full of shelf-help books, right? And they're, they, they, we, we go, we get the education, and they just come back and they go on the shelf. And that's to your point around actually being motion, being in action, taking action. And that's, you know, have that trader there to run you through the stuff in the gym is really, really impactful way of making sure that you get fit. But there's also a fundamental rule, you know, for anybody listening to this, who's going, ah, you know, this whole coaching thing and blah, blah, blah. It's That's great. But I often say to clients who are on the fence around it, I can't want this for you more than you want it for yourself. And I know that you're wired the same way that I am, is that, well, you showed up, you must want it. And you must want to grow and you must want to go first further, but then you get in your own way. And, and, and ultimately that's the answer. I can't want it for you more than you want it for yourself. Although we're wired to go, there's the path, just walk the path. Yeah. I think what the problem comes in is that people's, people's ambition doesn't necessarily match their work ethic always. Right. So everyone wants all these incredible things. Like who doesn't want all, like, who doesn't want all the riches? Who doesn't want to travel the world? Who doesn't want the yacht? Like I, or, or to live in, in the woods, whatever it is. 
These are all great things, but what are you willing to sacrifice to get it? And oftentimes you realize people aren't willing to sacrifice all that much, which is fine. But then I say, okay, well then let's just be happy where we're at. So in our program, I'm not trying to teach every realtor to become a top 1% or top 2%. You don't have to be top 2%, but can we have consistent business where you don't feel like you're in the rat race every single day? Where you're not like, you don't wake up on January 1st and you're like, I have no idea where I'm going to make my next buck. And oftentimes people in real estate, like, They'll, you know, they'll do a couple deals and then they're like, honey, let's go on vacation. Then they go on vacation for a month. And then it's like, oh shit, now we have all these bills to pay. And then they go back to their business. I'm like, let's just small incremental growth. I'm not trying to make everyone a gazillionaire because that's not for everybody. And I think people have to assess that themselves. Like where on the spectrum of ambition are you? And what are you willing to sacrifice? If you tell me, look, I'm only willing to work four days a week and only between the times of 10 and three, cool. Like, I get that. Maybe you have kids or you have other passions that you want to pursue. Great. But then don't expect the same amount of income if you're only, you know, going to put in those hours. But let's make it consistent over time. So just getting super real yes. with yourself. Love it. Okay. We've been hanging out a while. And as much as I could keep talking with you, we should start to wind things down. I'm going to go through what I call, you know, some rapid fire questions, which I jokingly call them rapid fire, but they're really not all that. I'm rolling my sleeves up. Let's go. Let's go. Here, let's get to work. Okay. So, you know, let's just get warmed up and, uh, you know, let's start. Apple or Android? Apple. Period. <laughs> I, I got nothing else to say about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You, yeah. We're okay. So not everybody's that way. I just got to say rare these days to see. So you talked about a couple of books that you're reading and you know, it's interesting that you said you're going to slow it down to a couple of books a year where you're going to reread and kind of dig into the books, which was something that has shown up for me in the past few months, which is rather than reading a lot of books, and I do read a lot of books or I listen to a lot of books. One of the challenges that was offered was don't read a lot, go deep into whatever book you're reading, digest it fully. Like literally take a month, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, to read that book and uh, unpack it in a really meaningful way so that you absorb it as opposed to just consume it. And that went, ah, that's an interesting thought process. And uh, so I've kind of committed to doing that. But when you talk about the books that you've read, is there one that was the most impactful for you? Or is there one that you like to share with others and gifted or whatever? But is there that book that had a, was, that even maybe was a turning point book for you. Yeah, I, it's actually neither of the books that I mentioned. Look, I have my copy of Thinking Real Rich right here. And I agree with you on the, you know, oftentimes people will say, look, I, I'm listening to podcasts at like two, two times the speed. And like, I get that to try to like consume as much information and, and in as little time as possible. But there is at some point, like there's usually activities and exercises in these books. And if you're not doing them, then you're not really doing the work, right? Probably the the book that had the biggest impact on me was Success Principles by Jack Canfield. The reason being that was the first book I read in the personal development space. And I've read that book twice. Um, I probably should go back. Maybe that'll be my next year one that I, I you know, I, I regurgitate again and again. I had never really heard those principles. Like growing up, we were a very academic focused household. So we, you know, like I have my master's, like I'm a, I'm a school person. So I didn't learn a lot of these like personal self-help skills along the way. And unfortunately, I think that was the one part that I lacked. And so I didn't come into this space until later in life, like probably when I was 30, 32, 33 is when I really started reading these types of books. 
Um, and that was the first one. And it was a total game changer to me. I was like, wow, I'd never, I've never heard of these things. And being fully responsible for yourself and looking at anytime something goes wrong, knowing that like you have yourself to blame and you could have changed things. Even if someone else did something bad, it's like, but you, you befriended them or you let them in your life and, or you hired the staff member that stole from you. Like everything is your decision and certainly how you deal with with the circumstance is also your decision. So that to me was, was a great book. So if, you know, if your listeners are just getting started, I think that's, that's the place to start. To me, that's the Bible. Yeah. It's interesting that in that same philosophy, and I read that book many years ago, but in that same fundamental philosophy, uh, Jocko Wilnick wrote the book, Extreme Ownership. And I think that for me is a must read for absolutely everybody. My whole team has read it. I've read it a couple of times and Jocko does a great job in terms of really getting people to understand extreme ownership to your point. And he was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jocko or if you've seen the book no, at all, Laura. I haven't read it. I just wrote it down. Yeah. Jocko Wilnick is a top performing naval seal, black belt, super duper star guy, right? In the military, right? He was big, 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 incredibly well-trained in leadership. He became one of the, the leaders or the key instructors in uh, the Navy SEAL training, but he did a lot of missions, Iran, Iraq, and he taught extreme ownership. So he was to the extreme of, of course, directing troops where people were putting their lives on the line. And so he had to be very methodical. And with all of his teams, he trained everybody that you were 100% responsible for your life and the decisions you make and what you do. And the book Extreme ownership is so powerful of shifting accountability. And so I try and be really great at it and I still catch myself. But there's a fundamental that says the minute you're blaming, you're complaining, stop. Look in a mirror and go, where am I responsible for this? And many years ago, I share this story really quickly is that a good friend of mine owned a really successful business. I was doing business with him and buying product. And at one time, I had a problem with a shipment. And I phoned Mike and I said, dude, I go, you know, your shipping guy did this and they did that. And I just want to let you know, it really pissed me off. It cost me some money. And Mike went on to say, you know something, Patrick got it. We'll look after it. Understood. And he was older than I was. And I really looked at him as the mentor. And he said to me, he says, but you know something, at the end of the day, I got to look in the mirror and realize this is my problem. And I didn't really get it. And I says, well, no, it's your stock guy or your shipping guy. And like, you know, I'm looking at it going, no, Mike, give yourself a break. It wasn't your problem. And he said to me, he goes, at the end of the day, it all lands with me. 100% of it lands with me. And, and I actually didn't get it then. I kind of got it. But I tell you the way that, and I, and I always have been pretty accountable that way. But the way Jocko, when he wrote the book, Extreme Ownership, it changed how our team even operates together. It's very powerful. So I, I, ju- I encourage you to kind of look at it. And I don't want to add a third book to your list of two. So <laughs> I'm being cautious. Right. It's not like I'll never read a new, a new book again. Uh, but that sounds right up my alley. I'm, look, I'm not particularly good at that skill. So I'm just going to be honest to the listeners. It's not like I walk around going, everything's my fault. And I have, you, you know, complete peace of mind with that and freedom because I know I can make the change. I I, like shit happens and I'm frustrated, you know, and I, and I blame other people because of my frustration. But I think what happens when you're on this journey of personal development is not like, oh, I've heard, I've read the book and now tomorrow I'm a different person. 
it's like you got to, it's like the muscle, right? Like you're training it over time. It's how fast can you catch yourself? And so I try to catch myself faster and faster. Sometimes I'd be in a funk for days. Like I'd be pissed off at the same thing for days. Maybe now it's just a couple hours. Sometimes I can actually get myself out of a funk in like 20 minutes. Like ideally, I'd like to get that even shorter and shorter. And so, you know, that shit takes practice. It's not easy, but it's it's simple, but it's just not easy to do. And so, you know, it, we're we're all on our our growth and our journey. Our and, journey. So that's definitely yeah. something I, I'll, yeah. I'll check out. <laughs> there's an interesting, you know, in terms of some of the stuff that my wife and I coach, Stephanie and I coach, you know, there's a statement that I make is their life is a reflection of who we are and the decisions we make of the decisions we don't make. So 100%. Our life is a reflection of that. And so it is a reflection of who we're being. And part of who we're being is where do we take accountability for the results we're getting? There is nobody else to blame. Nobody. Zero zip. And I know that's so hard for people to wrap their mind around, but ultimately when you just get that message, are you happy with your life? No, nobody else's fault. Are you living the vision for your life? No, guess what? It's up to you. And so where do you need to pick up your game? Where do you need to improve? There is no blame game. And it is so freaking hard to take that on because it's way easier, way easier to blame these outstanding circumstances. It's he did it, she did it. It's the economy, it's the government. Listen, I'm the first to go there. So understand that all of that is, we have these circumstances unfolding, but guess what? Own it, own it. Extreme ownership, do it. There you go. Love it, love That's it. That's what I got. Okay. <laughs> okay, see, all these are rapid fire questions. They're never rapid fire. Okay, do you have a favorite... Uh, I don't know, inspirational quote. She believed she could, so she did. I don't even know who said that. But that's my who favorite quote. Said because that? I don't, or maybe I made it up. No, I've seen it on things. She believed she could, so she did. And I, I guess <laughs> to me, it's just, A, I like that there's a she in it. So that makes me feel good. And yeah. and B, I think it, it goes to that point, right? Like me as a kid, just saying like, I believe I can run faster. So I just did. That is like, Everything starts with belief in yourself. If you believe that you can be successful and you can be a 1% person or you believe that you can be an Olympian, you believe you can be the best, I think that's where it comes down to. And, and we see this in sports all the time, right? The the people who truly, truly, like when you watch Michael Jordan's um, The Last Dance, like that man, like unwavering belief in himself. And that's all that mattered. It didn't even matter that he was the tallest, the biggest, the strongest. It just mattered that he believed that he was going to be the best, and he was. And so that's why I like that quote. Whether I made it up or not, I'll have to. I'll have to take a look and see where I got this quote from. But she believed she could, so she did. <laughs> I'd be interested. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I love it. You know, interestingly, you know, just totally, totally random. But you know, Michael Jordan, uh, Kobe Bryant. We look at all sorts of sports, basketball, and and because I. Over the years, because of the businesses I've been in, I've known many professional athletes and amateur athletes, and that's kind of a world I grew up in. But it is interesting that we see uh, Shaquille O'Neal, we see Kobe Bryant, you know, when when and we see Michael Jordan, any team of any of these, like I mean, superstars, Wayne Gretzky, any doesn't really matter. And we all think that we see them on TV, they're being interviewed, and just seem like such cool guys, like really neat people. And yet when you see now years later and they're interviewing teammates, former teammates, former competitors, people they were competing against, Michael Jordan is an asshole. 
Shaquille O'Neal was an asshole. And they're amazing men, and they're really cool guys today. Take it out of the athletic space. You know, the most successful CEOs are assholes. Full on. They don't give a shit what you think of them. They really don't care. Michael Jordan was that guy. And uh, I use that as an example is that because we talked about it earlier in our conversation today, is we get stuck on wanting to be liked or we get stuck on what people will think about us. In that level of success, when you really examine those individuals and you kind of you know, unpack it, look underneath the hood a little bit, guess what? They were not nice people and they didn't care. You know, the people who loved them, loved them. And I'm sure they were awesome with their friends and family. But outside that circle of influence, they just went. They were that driven. And I, and I, I say that only because we brought it up earlier is that we have this place where we just like, what do people think about us? Nah, I don't care. Yeah. You know, you're a top performer or you're not. Get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think, you know, I, 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 I lead with, um, I definitely, you know, maybe I'll never be the Michael Jordan of of real estate or of of real estate training, and maybe I'm okay with that. I do think that there is place for both, you know, to be to be likable, not just to be likable because you want to be liked, but because you're a nice person. Um, I think you can deliver news that is true, but in a kind way as well. Um, and you know, I think you can be competitive and respectful. So I think there's certainly ways to do it. And it's not to say that Michael Jordan wasn't respectful or all these things, but I definitely think that there's a way to do it and not be an asshole, or at least I hope, and I'm going to try. <laughs> you see, you're far too nice to be a bitch. There's just no way around <laughs> exactly, that. Exactly. Okay. There you go. It's just not going to happen. It's not natural. <laughs> it's not natural. Room, your desk or your car. What do you clean first? Oh, my room, my desk or my car, my, my, my desk. I like a neat desk, yeah. in all honesty. I know there's that saying when, like, I, I don't know. I, I Like, when I come into the office, every, I, I get overwhelmed. Yeah, I get overwhelmed with messiness. So it's like, let's at least start the day on the right foot. I'm a little bit wired like that, too. I need my environment pretty straightened up before I... It's like, I got to straighten up before I start a new project. Like, I need that clutter gone. I can't operate on top of a mess and on top of clutter. You know, that whole cluttered thing messes with my head. Yeah, it's like to me, like it's like showering. Like you, you got to shower in the morning. You got to like prepare yourself. And so preparing myself, like I work out in the morning. I have a very like pretty strict morning routine. And all these things are kind of part of getting me in the right mindset to tackle the day and having a desk that's clear so that I can like access things quickly is kind of part of it. It might be a little bit anal because I like I'm pretty organized for the most part. But I think it helps me throughout the day because things are inevitably going to get crazy and chaotic so it, like i try to control the things that i can control and that's and that's one of them for me beautiful okay favorite tune favorite band you got any some music what what do you got that's at the top list oh my god um like i'm 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 a classic rock kind of gal i like grew up with my god like van morrison is probably one of my favorites um i can listen to any album of his queen like like they're they're Greatest Hits album is one of the greatest albums of all time. So I, I'm a classic rock kind of gal. But like at the same time, I'm also like a hardcore 90s rap kind of gal. So I don't know how that all fits together. But uh, I'm a bit eclectic that way. Great. Love it. Favorite movie? You know, I don't really watch movies. I'm not a movie person. I like TV shows. I, I like getting in deep with the characters over the course of years of my life. I don't know what it says about me, but I like to 
build characters and I like to build these relationships and movies are too short. Like I, there's not enough time. By the time the movie's over, I don't even understand what happened. I got to ask my husband. He's like, you weren't paying attention. So for me, it's all about the TV shows. Okay. And probably if I had to pick a TV show right now, it would be, uh, oh my gosh, what would I be watching right now? What's the one with Kevin Costner? I love that show. Yellowstone. Yellowstone. That's my jam. <laughs> yes. Favorite swear word? It's the F word. <laughs> Have I said it here today? I, I'm surprised I haven't. I, I swear quite a bit. I have a bit of a potty mouth. You're an F-bomber? I am an F-bomber and and my mother would hate it, but I, you know, it is what it is. I, I grew up with a lot of guys in my life. I always had, you know, I didn't have a lot of like girlfriends growing up. And so I feel like I just kind of put myself in that situation and they happened to swear and I kind of just grew up with it. And yeah, I have a bit of a potty mouth. I swear quite a bit. Good job. And final question, Laura, what are you grateful for? Oh my gosh, what am I grateful for? Quite honestly, I have to give this one to my parents. It changes every day. I always try to be grateful for something. But today, just because you asked me about all these questions about my childhood, you kind of brought my parents to the forefront. And I just so appreciate everything that they've done for me and 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 what they sacrificed for me. You know, we talk about sacrificing. What are people willing to sacrifice? And I think both of my parents sacrificed a great deal. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Fantastic. And I am grateful always for the podcast and the opportunity I have to speak with guests like you. So I am grateful for the opportunity to speak with you. I've gotten to meet you in the past and uh, hopefully we will get to know each other better in the future, but definitely grateful for you. I'm always grateful for my family, my wife and my amazing life. So, uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute blast. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.